and you're listening to The Verge Cast, the flagship podcast of removable power cords. I'm your friend, Alex Kranz, and you know, it's, it's kind of nice here in New York City today because it's snowing, technically. Big fat flakes, but it's super warm, so they're not actually sticking. But it's a nice change of pace because if you didn't know, until yesterday, North Texas had actually gotten more snow than New York City this year absolutely wild stuff. More wild is the show we've got coming up today. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm talking with Chris Welch and Jen Tui and also Neelai. And we're going to be talking all about the HomePod's place in like the smart home ecosystem, what it means for matter, what it means for home theaters. It's a lot of fun. I'm also going to be talking to Catherine Trindacosta from the EFF all about faking your death online. And finally, hanging out with my good friend, Sean Hollister. We're going to be talking about your favorite gadget, my favorite gadget, everybody's favorite gadget, the Steam Deck. It's going to be a super fun, super nerdy time. All of that's happening right after this. I wonder if I could do a snow angel in this. I probably should not. Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking. So why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Okay, welcome back. Apple's big HomePod has returned. The second gen HomePod is not that much different from the original, but it has added a couple of updates, including for like audio, for the smart home, even some of the home theater stuff. So I had to get together with Jennifer Pattinson-Tui, who has been reviewing it from like the smart home perspective, and Chris Welch, who's been reviewing it from like that audio nerd perspective, and then Nilay Patel, who reviewed the original one way back in 2018. Let's get to the convo. I've got three incredible people with me, well, two incredible people and Nilay with me to talk about... (laughs) <laughs> talk about the new home pod. Neelai Patel is here. Hi, Neelai. I'm going to just interpret this the other way, which is that y'all are incredible, but I'm fabulous. I love that. That is exactly what I meant. You got to look inward to your own heart and find your own validation in life. That's a real <laughs> lesson when you hit 40. Jen Dewey is here. Hello. I'm very pleased to be here. Also feeling fabulous. There you go. See? Welcome to my team, Jen. We're the fun <laughs> ones. And Chris Welch is here. Hello. I'm surrounded by three HomePods right now. Wow. It's a party over here. They're taking over. Okay. Well, this will surprise no one. We're talking about the HomePod today. Jen and Chris have a review. They're up on the site right now. You can go read it and see their their feelings, or you can listen to this. Or both. This is like a a spatial audio DVD commentary. What you need to do (laughs) as you're reading the review, play this podcast from three or four HomePods placed strategically throughout your home. And we're slowly all creeping up on you. It's going to be great. 
All right. So so this is kind of a big deal for them because we thought the HomePod was dead or at least pretty done. And now there's a whole new one. How different is it, Jen, from like a smart home perspective? Well, from the smart home side, it's actually very different from the original HomePod. Okay. It's identical to the HomePod mini. <laughs> there's like... <laughs> No difference <laughs> other than $200. <laughs> well, uh, the, the one thing that's different, I take that back. One, one small but large difference is speed. So the new HomePod has the fast, has a fastest processor. It has the S7, whereas the HomePod mini has the S5. And that is the one thing I definitely noticed that the uh, new HomePod, the HomePod 2 responded very snappily to my Siri requests. Very few on it or <laughs> compared to the mini which you know has it's getting a little long in the tooth you know it's turning three this year so there's you know what you would expect to see a bit more speed but feature parity is identical between the two there are a lot of new features though there's a lot of sound focus um outside of audio sound which chris i'm sure is gonna regale us with but there's um a new feature coming in the spring that's actually not here yet which is gonna turn the, the mini and the homepod 2 into a smoke alarm and co monoxide alarm detector not oh, wow. sound detector so it's not actually turning into a smoke alarm but it will listen for your smoke alarms and your <laughs> carbon monoxide alarms because they have unique signatures and that will come in the spring and mean you'll get sent an alert to your phone if one of your home pods in your home hears an alarm going off which is a very useful feature that all the other smart home speakers already do, which is kind of a theme in my review is that this is really Siri and the HomePod kind of playing catch up in the smart home space and adding a lot of features that are great and super handy and that everyone else already did. <laughs> so, um, but that's good for Apple home users who are, you know, a dedicated bunch and who don't necessarily want to switch ecosystems to get some of these features. You know, we finally have multiple timers, which has, uh -huh. those have been around for a little while now. <laughs> um, and <laughs> those have been actually around for a year or so, but they, they work great and you can name your timers now. Oh, wow. Which is, yeah, very handy. You can even dismiss a timer from one room if the HomePod is in the another room, which is nice. You don't have to yell. <laughs> There's a lot of little things like that that just uh, kind of little quality of life features, smart home features that have come to the new HomePod and to the HomePod mini. And, you know, you can one thing I really like, which is mm -hmm. unique to the HomePod, is the Find My capability. So you can now track your family just with your voice you know <laughs> where's my child where's my husband you know you don't have to get your phone out and like put effort in that's the next great apple commercial is just someone screaming where's my husband and yeah. a speaker lighting up and saying the he's answer. outside do you ever think about the people who spend their lives like laying underground under ocean fiber optic cables on ships or the engineers who spend their entire lives developing the next process technology for like a microchip like the s7 yeah and like one day they wake up and like it's all in service of people being able to set two timers at once and that's what we're <laughs> going to be excited about tomorrow it's exciting siri in particular every time it comes up i'm like this is all we get like all this work <laughs> two timers and it's like you can name one timer and you can scream where's my husband and that is the pinnacle <laughs> of, of assistant technology you can do lots of timers, actually. I did up to five at once, which oh, was quite wow. exciting. Oh, my God. <laughs> See? Take that, cruise ship people. <laughs> so much for your nihilism. Well, we do also have the uh, temperature and 
and humidity sensing, which we've actually written Ooh, about quite a lot on the yeah. site this week. But that's that's going to be in the, the HomePod 2. And I've been finding that really kind of fun because uh, it's cold right now in South Carolina, which is very unusual. So I've been using it to keep my rooms temperate. And it's worked really well, although I was talking with our deputy editor, Dan, who is also a big HomePod Apple Home user, and he's been trying to set up the humidity sensor to do things, which I don't really need to do in South Carolina because South Carolina is humidity <laughs> personified. Um, and um, he's not been having any luck with that. So there's still a bit of testing we need to do to sort of, you know, put that through its paces. We've only only had these diddy little devices for a few days now. I'm holding mine up. It's actually quite hefty. You could do good, good arm workouts. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you've been doing, Chris? You've got two of them, so you can do both arms at the same time? Yes, just benching those every night. It's like the rock, you know, the rock curls his children. I've never seen that. It's very funny. HomePod curls. Jen, can I ask you this question? It seems like there's the updates to Apple Home and sort of matter coming along for the ride. So yeah. the Apple Home and HomeKit ecosystem is getting a big upgrade. And there was a software update to existing HomePods and the HomePod Mini that sort of exposed these sensors, added more capabilities. What is required in that suite of new features to get a new HomePod for? Because I think the line for me is really blurry. It doesn't seem like the hardware of the new HomePod is required for a lot of the new features of Apple Home that are coming out now. So in terms of matter, you don't need a new HomePod for matter. In fact, the original HomePod will be a matter controller. It will not be a thread border router, though. It doesn't have a thread radio in. And that is something you might want with matter because a lot of... or some new devices are coming out that use Thread, and Apple Home is kind of leaning more on Thread as opposed to Bluetooth yeah. for a lot of its connectivity, which is a good move because Bluetooth in the smart home has never been a, a great experience. We know. Bluetooth is just a hot mess. <laughs> Next year, all right? <laughs> Next year. So, I, you know, I definitely see Apple Home moving away from reliance on Bluetooth, and Thread is really where they're putting their, their eggs in the basket. And Thread is still kind of a nascent technology. It's It's been around for almost a decade, but this, the infrastructure is still not quite there to support a strong Thread network. I've been talking to a diff number of different companies who are all producing Thread border routers, which is part of Matter. They're two distinct technologies that work hand in hand, Matter and Thread. And the problem is right now, if you have like a Google Home Thread border router, which it's the Nest Hub Max is one, and you also have, say, an Echo 4th Gen, which is going to be a border router in the next few months, They'll all create their own separate oh, no. thread networks, which kind of defeats the purpose of thread. <laughs> so <laughs> we're waiting. Everyone promises me that this is all going to be fixed soon and that eventually all of these devices will work together in sort of harmony in your home, which is, you know, the promise of matter. So I would recommend if you're on the fence and you don't have a HomePod or an Apple TV that supports thread and you're looking at buying one, it's worth having a device with a thread border router if you want to work in the smart home, because it, it will, it's future-proof in your smart home, but you don't need one necessarily today. So it's interesting because Apple came out with two new Apple TVs and didn't put thread in one of them, but did <laughs> in the other. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe, I don't know, they're hedging their bets there a little too, but it does, it is an important step for matter, which Apple has been fully kind of on board with since the beginning, because it actually sort of started matter. One of the, it was one of the founding companies and it has, you know, contributed HomeKit to the infrastructure of matter. There's a lot of similarities between Apple Home, using Apple Home and using matter devices. 
The problem right now is there are just not very many Matter devices to use. Mm-hmm. And they sent us, um, Apple sent us a Matter, an Eve Matter device to use with the HomePod, which is great. Is that a light switch, a plug? Uh, the plug, yes. Okay. The Eve Energy plug. And I'd already used, I'd already been using a Matter Eve Energy plug that I'd upgraded myself. But there's just not enough devices out there yet to really get a feel of how this is all going to work. The momentum is there, though. And I would, you know, I'm definitely going to sort of check in in a, a few months' time and see. If the thread solution, the thread situation has resolved itself and, you know, whether these devices are actually creating a stronger, more robust network in your home or if they're all still competing with each other and and causing issues, which (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately is one of the problems at the moment. So the, the dumb question here is if you have an existing HomePod and you're happy with it, your reasons to upgrade from a smart home perspective are kind of zero, right? It's like you want Thread, but there's not enough reason to have Thread yet. And if you have a new Apple TV or you have a HomePod Mini or they actually get together and work together, you have Eero routers or an Echo, like that stuff will serve the purpose. Correct. There's no major benefit to having multiple Thread border routers. You can do it and it will help extend your network, your mesh network, but only if you live in a reasonable sized home, you're not going to need multiple border routers. So yes, if you have an original HomePod and you're happy with it, it's fast enough for you and it responds well <laughs> enough for you, then, you know, you can get thread for less than $300 quite easily by adding a HomePod mini or an Apple TV, or as you said, a border router from a, a from a different company because the new one's faster. The new one is faster. Yes. That's been my experience from the smart home side. Like I put a HomePod 2 and a mini together and asked my questions and the HomePod 2 always got got there first, <laughs> grabbed the glory and ran with it and responded quickly that, like I said, much less sort of, I mean, an ring and kind of waiting, spinning its wheels. Um, there was a much faster response. I am actually on the new Apple Home architecture, which I think is not actually to do with matter, but it's sort of like in pre- preparation for matter. Mm-hmm. And that is something that they pulled. Apple had a lot of issues when it first rolled out. But if you did get it when it first rolled out and it worked for you, it's still working. And I found that it has been a lot more stable and a mo- lot more reliable. So the improvement in the HomePod 2 could also be down to the improvement in the home architecture. I don't have an original HomePod here to kind of compare, but but my mini is not as fast. So it's probably, probably going to generally be faster. Chris, does it sound better? Uh, it sounds very similar to the first HomePod, uh, very similar and not the same. Like if you put them side by side, you can tell some differences, Yeah. but sometimes the new one sounds clearer and better. And sometimes the old one sounds a bit more detailed, like all comes down to what song you're playing. But on the whole, it's very, very similar. They cut down the number of tweeters, right? Yeah. There are five now as opposed to seven last time. And there are four mics instead of six. Uh, There's also a new system sensor is what it's called, which is the most vague thing I've ever heard in my life. Uh, That's (laughs) supposed to like help with all like the computational tuning even better than it was last time. So on the whole, those things should hopefully balance out for like a very similar overall sound, which it is. So if you like the first one, you like this one. If you didn't like the first one, you're probably not going to love this one either. So you're not going to sit there. You never like. We're listening to stuff on the new one and being like, man, I just missed those seven tweeters. Yeah, not myself, but I'm sure there will be like a small group of people who swear that they ruined it and that the first HomePod was like a really special product. Oh, yeah. The <laughs> stereo form people are about to. I mean, this is this is the greatest gift they've ever been given is arguing about the number of tweeters in the HomePod. So yeah. the, the first one, when I reviewed it a long time ago, mm-hmm. there was a lot of Apple like made a lot of noise about computational audio using the 
tweeters. They, you know, they have a sensor in, in the body of the HomePod to measure the distance the woofer is going, right? Mm-hmm. They were bouncing some sound off the walls and measuring that in real time. If you moved it, they would remeasure it. All very cool. I was never like, oh, this is the greatest sounding speaker in history, which is kind of where Apple like led people to believe like their version of computational audio would dramatically blow away speakers costing tens of thousands of dollars. And at the end of the day, it's like it's limited by its size, right? It's like it's this big and it can do this much. And like Mm -hmm. it sounds very good. And the Sonos one sounds pretty good, too. And the Sonos five sounds a little bit better and it has bigger low end drivers so it can make more bass right like it's just very much they overhyped it because i think siri was bad so their solution to marketing it was like it's the best sounding speaker in the world are they doing that again this time or are they just kind of like here's you love the home pod mini now it's bigger oh uh, there was less talk of all that stuff but it is still the same as far as like the room yeah. stuff goes and all that background process goes but yeah i mean the review that like the sound is very clear super detailed rich whatever but there's no warmth uh, to the HomePod sound, whereas like Sonos does have some of that and some other speakers do. This is very like, this is what the lab told us <laughs> a speaker should sound like. Oh, yeah. that's interesting though. Because I remember the one HomePod having a much warmer sound than the Sonos one. Sometimes I guess certain tracks, again, it comes down to again, but on the whole, it's just very clear to me. Like that's the one thing that I always like, vocals are right there in the center. It sounds good. I think two is where it really starts to like sound really, really good, but that's $600. So at that point, you are looking at a Sonos 5 or whatever else, too. You will get more serious separation from two, obviously. Yeah, so uh, two together. And that's where the spatial audio thing, a case can be made that when you have two very nice speakers (laughs) (laughs) beaming sound all over the room, that spatial audio does start to make a bit more sense and sounds pretty good for like the very good master tracks. Okay, it started to make sense. Did it actually, mm-hmm. like, were you like, okay, I get spatial audio now? Uh, for a few songs, yeah. Uh, but there are still so many that are bad that still don't sound, <laughs> don't sound as good as their stereo versions. But yeah, there are certainly some tracks where there's just like a more atmosphere and you can hear instruments throughout the room and it's yeah. a bit more than stereo itself. So it's there, uh, certainly more than headphones and earbuds where it's still just very silly. My new go-to rule is it only sounds good if the music was meant to be listened to on drugs. Right. <laughs> and so like, music for being on drugs, that's like great. And then everything else, uh, and we've got notes about this, people like it, but everything else just kind of like loses impact. Mm-hmm. And I think where Apple could succeed here is by getting away from spatial audio for music, which they are just relentlessly promoting to, to no discernible effect and focusing on the TV features they've added to the HomePod, right? And saying, okay, you can get two HomePods together. They've added this new feature where you can do eARC off a TV, so you can send all the audio from your TV to your HomePods. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that? Well, I'll have Chris explain that, but then you get you <laughs> do you get Atmos when you do that, like proper movie Atmos. I think it mixes down Atmos. Like there are no like upfiring speakers, obviously, in the HomePod, yeah. uh, but it sounds pretty good. Yeah, so that feature has been around. I guess uh, they've called it beta uh, to like last week when they actually put out TVOS sixteen point three or whatever it was, and so now it's like a full on feature. And so you can plug uh, the Apple TV four K. You need the new one. Uh, that goes into your TV's eARC port, and then uh, the HomePods will play all of your TV's audio. So, like, I was playing a PS5 game, and there was, like, no latency, no audio sync issues. I was like, this is not supposed to work this well. This is eARC. <laughs> it's supposed to be a hellscape. It's HDMI. <laughs> yeah, like, none of this is supposed to work, right? <laughs> this public service, what TV do you have that you were using this with? Uh, I've got the Hisense U8H myself, and I have very good Wi-Fi, so I'm sure that, that okay. plays into it, too. There, there are many factors that could make this worse for you, but it does work. And so that by itself has me convinced that Apple has more home theater uh, stuff coming down the pipeline. Because like, why would you go through all that work 
just for the home pod you know? well i remember the number one thing when i did the review of the first one the number one question people asked was can i use it with my apple tv all the time mm-hmm. and so yeah. i think just from a you know not apple doesn't do like proper focus groups but just from like a market research perspective they were like what would make the home pod better and they're like i want to use it for my tv it's like you would build it they built it you know i think i would put this in the same category of like it doesn't detect a fire but it can listen for a smoke alarm mm-hmm. it's like a Rube Goldberg machine to get what you want out of the HomePod. <laughs> right. It's like, you need an Apple TV and you e-arc into the Apple TV and that wirelessly sends to the HomePod. And we don't actually detect a fire, but we'll listen for a, a smoke. <laughs> like it gets to the right outcome, which is your right. phone beeps. If there's a fire and the TV audio is coming out of the speaker, it's mm. just a winding path to get there. That is kind of like distinctly on Apple. Yeah. It seems strange to leave your Apple TV on at all times uh, for that feature too, but it sounds better than like a Sonos Ray soundbar, like the two of them together. Really? The bass. Those woofers are, yeah. those are legit woofers. So like, if you don't have like a subwoofer for your Sonos or any kind of like budget level soundbar, this is going to sound much better than that. But again, you've got to leave your Apple TV on all the time, but, which I'm sure some people do. Like that's their mainstreaming device and that's fine. It's kind of in a weird place financially though, because a beam is like $300 and this is... $600. Yes, $600. And then an arc is what, $200 more than that. And yeah. that'll give you true Atmos and right. and everything. So it's like, I don't really know if the people who are buying a Sonos are like, do I want to go into this weird middle ground necessarily with two HomePods? Right. Yeah. That's for people who just like live like all in Apple's world, thoroughly in the ecosystem, don't want to go anywhere else. And they're happy there. Yeah. If you're like an exceedingly well-groomed person who wears all black yeah. and you live alone <laughs> and you don't allow strangers into your house and all the magazines are perfectly arranged... <laughs> this is going to be great for you. Yeah. And all of your furniture is made of concrete. You know, like I'm describing like my idealized lifestyle. Like, let's be clear. I'm not trying to talk down to be like, if I was very single, like I'd be like, yes, all my furniture is made out of concrete and you're not allowed in my home. Uh, and all I have is home pods with the wire perfectly routed. So you can't see it. But like in reality, that's like not how it works for most people. Well, you can remove the wire now. Yeah, exactly. Now that you can remove the wire, I know we're going to see third party battery mounts for this thing. Oh my God. There's, there's still a lot of question, like why bring it back? Okay. And, I'm biased because I'm coming from the smart home side. But I think, honestly, it all ties in with Matter and Thread because the original HomePod was discontinued just after they started Matter. And I think Apple realized that this was not going to be capable of supporting this new smart home platform. And the biggest change, really, in in this device from the original is the support for Thread. And it has Matter, which you can have in both. But this is now their flagship smart home controller for Matter. And the people were sad it was gone. They wanted it back. It wasn't as successful as perhaps people expected, but there's a passionate user base behind this <laughs> this device, the original version, and I'm sure there will be with the new version. And it, it, it fits perfectly into the lineup, but it's not what they really needed to do. What they really need to do is bring us a smart home controller that we can actually use to control our smart home that has a touch interface (laughs) and that works with multiple people because right now Apple just sucks at that. Yeah. I really struggled. I could not get personal requests to work for all of my family with the new HomePod or the old HomePod. Just your your husband and you were the only ones that worked for it. Only my husband and I would work. As soon as I had my kids, it just went crazy. Did it, Was it just like they do not like pay the mortgage, so they do not get <laughs> <Right>. a say? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't know what it was. I've been talking to Apple. They've been troubleshooting, but we haven't found a solution. But every time I added either of my children, one of whom is over 14 and one of whom's under, because that's a, a cutoff point with family sharing, it would just stop recognizing anyone's voice. And the personal request side is a real challenge in the smart home. None of the other platforms have actually nailed it very well either. I, I struggle with both Google Home and Amazon Alexis ecosystem for them to recognize personal requests. It's it's a hard it's a hard problem, but it's one that really needs to be solved because the smart home is not about the single guy in the concrete house. It's about <laughs> multi-user homes and and places where, you know, you've got roommates, there's very few people that live alone and that are going to have a, a vast or a comprehensive smart home ecosystem because and that's something that all these solutions need to work on. And hopefully, I mean, Apple's has been the most useful to date because of the tight integration with the phone. But obviously, if not everyone in your home uses iPhones or iOS devices, then it's it's just not useful. And as much as Matter is helping bring down those walled gardens for the smart home, Apple is still very much a curated garden party. <laughs> 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 well, so, so the, the, the matter piece for Apple is really interesting. They're, they're very much behind it. They did give up a bunch of home kit or share it with the, the matter consortium to build off of it. And that's because the other smart home ecosystems were ahead, right? Alexa notably is, is much more ahead. Many more devices work with Alexa. You get everybody to support matter. All those devices work with home kit as well. You can control them from your phone. That's great for Apple, but isn't the flip side of it that the Alexa you know, and Echo Show can also control your your smart plugs just as well as HomeKit on your phone? Well, that's the, that's the key phrase, just as well. <laughs> well <laughs> will it? <laughs> I mean, because Matter is giving that common infrastructure so that everyone can control the same devices, but you still have to have the, the good user experience on top. And as I've talked about before in articles, it the HomePod and the Apple Home ecosystem is one of the better user experiences. The Alexa experience, the Amazon experience is still, it's, it's so big and it does, it can do so many things that it's also really hard to kind of keep track of and remember exactly what, what you want it to do. And you might ask it to turn on a light and it will go and buy you some toilet paper. You know, there, there's too much going on. Whereas the Siri ecosystem and, and Apple Home is a lot more tightly controlled. So if you're using Matter devices in either platform, you're going to have different experiences because of the experience that each platform adds. And that's where the, they're going to differentiate is by, you know, with Apple Home, you can use adaptive lighting. And that's not part of a Matter yet, but hopefully it will come so that, you know, you don't just have to buy the expensive light bulbs to get that expensive feeling feature where the lights change naturally during the day with sunlight. Um, you'll be able to use any matter enabled light bulb and, you know, have that feature that you can use through Apple Home. Um, Amazon Alexa doesn't offer that feature yet. So, you know, there's going to be things like that that make the difference, that, that make you choose one platform over the other. I think this product was just, just like so easy for them. It's like such an easy lift. Like, so they call this the all new HomePod and that's just the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life because it's like the same design. <laughs> and it's like, here's your new speaker. It's very similar. And so they just like bought themselves probably two years to build something new that's actually going to like be that yeah. new thing for the home. Well, so you were talking about what they should build, right? Which is like a tablet with a touch screen that you can actually click the buttons on. Like put, put an iPad on a stand. That's what Google is doing with the next version of the Nest. We don't know when it's going to come, but... They showed one. I'm wondering on a more conceptual level, 
HomeKit in particular doesn't live anywhere that a user understands, right? You buy an Echo and it's like, now I'm in control of your smart home. And you're like, okay, this computer is the one that's in charge of my smart home. And that's not exactly right. There's a lot of cloud services and all this other stuff going on. But like, you're like, this is the thing that controls my house. HomeKit lives on an Apple TV. It lives on an iPad until recently. It could live on this thing. Like a lot, you can solve a lot of HomeKit problems by just like rebooting your Apple TV, which or your iPhone, yeah, or your <laughs> iPhone. And it's like the lights aren't working. I needed to turn off my phone. Like I say this stuff out loud to people, and I I know I just sound like a maniac. <laughs> That's so true. Does this solve that problem? It's like all right, now I'm just going to reboot the HomePod, and that'll fix it. Yeah. So it, that has been the go-to solution for any issue with HomeKit, um, your phone, and your whichever home hub you have. And with Alexa in particular, and a lot of Google Home, there's much more reliance on the cloud. But the intricacies of how the Apple TV and the HomePod and the phone and all work together have very much been kind of a black box. We just know that rebooting the phone works. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows why? Apple has said, I think, that the new home architecture is going to kind of make some of that a little clearer, but that hasn't officially arrived yet. So we, we still don't really understand the difference. I did notice in my testing since I've been on the new home architecture that it does stick with one home hub rather than bouncing around. Like it used to love going to my HomePod minis which I would constantly unplug for various reasons and would mess everything up. Now it just sticks with my Apple TV that's hardwired. And it's like, hallelujah, this makes sense. <laughs> this is what we should have done since the beginning. Do you get to choose that? No, no, you still can't choose it. But it just seems to be more rational than it used to be before. <laughs> um, and it did try and use the HomePod, the new HomePod a couple times, but then it was like, eh, it went back to the Apple TV. So, and that's something about the smart home in general that I think confuses people. And what is going to help with Matter, because we're going to bring almost most devices and most interactions that you need to be quick and happen on a regular basis into your home and local without having to use the cloud. Because that's where, you know, when people get frustrated with Siri, I think we talked about this on our last episode together, Alex, you know, because she's, it is waiting or it's, it can't connect to the internet or it can't get some device to work. Yeah. It's normally something is broken in a cloud connection or some kind of Wi-Fi connection. Whereas once we have this more robust infrastructure for the smart home, those kind of issues won't won't happen so much, hopefully. And it'll be a much smoother experience. You know, just as easy as actually turning the light switch on. <laughs> <laughs> the ever elusive goal. It's so funny because I still have my little Homebridge Tamagotchi in the garage that I have to go and like reboot and open up to take the SD card out and like reformat it every few months. And I'm like, this is better. <laughs> like, this is like concentrated effort into chaos. Like every three months I start it all over and then it's fine for three months. As opposed to, you know, like matter, which is one day, I'm sure, just like Bluetooth, it'll be better. But right now it's like a lot of like diffuse effort to even know what the hell is going on. I think the good thing, though, the thing that I'm most excited about with matter and thread is that you won't need a Tamagotchi. You won't need a single device that runs everything. Because when you have a single device that runs everything, you have a single point of failure. And that's when things go belly up. And, you know, with Thread in particular and with Apple and most of the ecosystems putting Matter and Thread into 
every device. Most people these days with smart homes have more than one smart speaker. So you're going to have these multiple points that can keep your smart home running if, you know, mm. because someone unplugged your um, echo speaker to use their hairdryer and you didn't realize and now nothing's working in your home anymore. You know, that, that won't happen anymore. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think that Thread got chosen over Zigbee because in previously and when you use Zigbee if you're familiar with you know like Philips Hue runs on a Zigbee bridge and you know one morning I might wake up and I'm like why are none of my lights turning on <laughs> and I realize it's because someone unplugged my Hue bridge for some reason but nothing you know it's you're going to lose that single point of failure and the smart home is going to become much more kind of diffuse and more integrated into your home rather than just relying on little white boxes or or Tamagotchis in the garage. No, but Jen, here's my solution, though. Everything is routed through my Homebridge Tamagotchi. But then, independently of that, that is plugged into a smart plug that is on HomeKit natively. Oh so when God. the Homebridge crashes, I can just reboot no. it through the living room. <laughs> no, that's not like... smart plug. It's I'm like a genius. <laughs> that works unless your Wi-Fi's gone down. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and then you're just out of luck. <laughs> this is also a great solution for uh, troubleshooting anything at your parents' house remotely, is you get a smart plug on their network and then you just turn I spent like three hours on the phone with my dad the other night because he couldn't figure out why when he reconnected his router it wasn't working and he just put two cables the wrong way around and it's like uh, yep. this the smart home is doomed <laughs> <laughs> well it, we, we are going to face like a challenge for the next couple of years though right as everybody has because people still have to upgrade everything that's never going to support matter and they're still going to have to like wait for some company's dyson's like yeah we're doing matter and then crickets there's a lot of crickets yeah sonos crickets yeah <laughs> yeah although the good thing is that matter works with your existing ecosystems right so if you're all in on apple home or all in on amazon or google or smart things you can start adding matter devices now and they will work just like they do, like your system works today. So it's not like we're asking, you know, it's not, matter's not going to make everything have to start from scratch. It is going to be a slow process. It's, you know, like when they try and redo roads or redo the plumbing, they're not going to do it all at once because everything would explode. You need, it's a slow process. Um, so yes, I think ultimately I'm going to be doing this for a long time. It's going to keep me in a job. <laughs> Speaking of Sonos, I do kind of wonder, uh, we did mention Sonos, and I do kind of wonder if like six months down the line, we're going to wonder, like, did Apple play it too safe uh, with the HomePod too? Because like, Sonos is going to come out with a brand new, like, wholly redesigned speaker, like spatial audio, you say? Okay, here's like a 10 driver, like speaker that's going to have USB-C in and all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah, I'm just really hesitant to think of how many people who can afford a HomePod are also thinking like... It's either that or the Sonos. I would assume most of those people are usually like, it's that and the Sonos. I make this mistake too. I think I always yeah. think of the HomePod is like, you should get two of them. And so like, <laughs> I think it costs $600, but it costs $300. It costs $300. Like, yeah. It's, it's in a, a pretty reasonable range for a lot of, of people who are willing to spend money on smart light, light switches and whatever. Like, I think what Chris is getting at is Sonos is going to offer you more advanced technology than what Apple has. It might have even more unnecessary audio processing, and it will work mm -hmm. with more things. For example, a thing that the Sonos speaker will do is work with Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> Which is still not there as a default service. But I guess that's Spotify's fault at this at this point. Yeah, but I, I think like they're different products, right? Like one is probably more intended for the HomePod I see is more like, oh, I've got Sonos in my my living room. That's my th home theater. 
I'm not going to necessarily want to use HomePods for that. The HomePod is more like I need to have music while I'm cooking dinner and I need to be able to talk to it because one is talking and like Sonos is bad at the assistance. Sonos is real, real bad at the assistance. So I just don't like if you're getting it for the assistant, you don't need like those are two different things. It falls in a slightly odd spot because if you just need the, the music while you're cooking dinner, then you've got the mini. Yeah. If you want more interaction, you want to follow a recipe in the kitchen, then you're going to go with like a show, an Echo Show or a, a Nest Hub. You know, an iPad sitting next to a mini is just, just feels kind of wrong. <laughs> I just feel like it's, it is, as Chris said, it was an easy upgrade now, but I don't think it's the grand plan for Apple Home right. going forward. Yeah. yeah. I might, but I think I'm in a very small minority because we use Google Assistant on our Sonos One and we uh-huh. use Google Homes and their default audio device is set to Sonos speakers in the various rooms they're in. And these companies are suing each other and they hate each other. And everyone says it's not supposed to work. <laughs> I was going to say, how did you get that to work? <laughs> I think it's because I cover the lawsuit that they're both like, we can't screw this up in this one house. There's like one engineer from each company on call to be like, all right, they asked to play classic rock at 7 p.m. Like, make it happen. And like someone pushes the play on Spotify on the Sonos side. Like, I don't know. I- I'm assuming there's some sort of complicated legal PR Rube Goldberg machine to make sure it works in my house. But I like, that's the dream, right? Is that you assemble all these components from all these different vendors and you kind of get the the best of everything or at least a solution that's more tailored to you. Yeah. Right? Because what I want is the, the only reason we have Google homes is because of the photo feature on the, on the, on the nest hubs. And yeah. It's really good. And like, I don't know why Amazon hasn't built a good photo system uh, for the they're Echoes. Trying. I don't know why Apple they've tried hasn't built like, one Google, at all. <laughs> and yeah, Apple this the default like just make the thing with the screen. Like people will buy it without a second's hesitation. But like that's what we want, so that's what we have. And then we want Sonos speakers because that works with all the other stuff we have. And it's like I would get a HomePod, but again, it's like the concrete table problem where it's like it's designed for this one. It's designed for Tim Cook. Yeah. <laughs> Tim Cook's house has a lot of concrete furniture in it, you know? And like, it's just like, you don't make enough products here. I get, like, it's not versatile enough or there's not, the product line is not versatile enough to to fit into all these spots in your house. So I, I guess I'm coming at from the, kind of the same place as you, Alex, which is like, there's maybe one room in my house where this would be great. Yeah. But there's like, I want a smart home is like the home. Yeah. This home pod is like slightly better slightly cheaper, but it's not going to change the calculus on like who's buying it in the first place. And so yeah. I think like the first one wasn't a hit. I can't see this one being like a smash hit either at two ninety nine. Maybe once it goes down to, like two forty nine at some stores, that'll pick up some. Uh but I think like on the whole it's it's the same home pod. Bit smarter. <laughs> what is the price you would like instant buy it at? I think one ninety nine for sure. I'd be like, sure, buy it. And that's the studio, the Echo Studio is one ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Sonos one is one ninety nine too, right? Thereabouts, yeah. I'm just going to say this out loud. A really good pair of regular old stereo speakers sounds better than any of this stuff. Blasphemy. Yes. It's it's just true. It's true. it's true. Do you ever go into the, the home theater Reddit and it's like half the people are there like, I've just replaced my, my Sonos or my Vizio soundbar or whatever and I just got two speakers and got rid of my sub and it's like I'm hearing everything for the first time. <laughs> it's like way better. It's just way yeah, better. There's, there's an entire other episode of the show on the specs that get marketed. And in 
whatever. I'm just saying like all these speakers are like inherently noisy and they try to cover it up with extra processing because they're full of radios. And like, if you just like make speakers that are not full of radios and are connected with wires to clean sources, (laughs) you're like in a much better spot. Whoa. But that's the problem. Everyone, you know, we, we want these multi-use devices now in our home. We expect more out of our speakers than to just play music or just to play the audio from our TV. And it's, it's a problem. And it's actually another problem. I mean, Chris and I've talked about this in the past. Like Matter actually has a casting spec built in. So in theory, if all these players, keep playing nice together you know we could be playing all our music on all of our smart speakers and our airplay speakers everything could all work harmoniously but that doesn't seem like it's going to happen (laughs) um (laughs) mainly because sonos and and bose and and a couple of the other big speaker companies who are part of the csa which is behind matter don't seem to be actually making any movement or any headway on doing this multi-room audio between companies and the individual companies that have multi-room audio like Amazon and Google and Apple, you know, they want to keep their, but they, these are little fiefdoms that look like they're going to stay. We're not, the whole Kumbaya part of matter doesn't necessarily look like it's going to <laughs> go through the entire smart home space, unfortunately. And audio is such a big ticket item for most of these companies, right? Because they want you to stick with their streaming service, their subscription service. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, like Amazon and Apple and Google like have no interest in making smart plugs or window shade controllers because there's no recurring revenue against them. Like exactly. if Apple's like, it's our new smart plug. It it's part of iCloud. It will cost ten dollars a month. People want <laughs> to go away. And so like you see where they're like willing to commodify the ecosystem. But streaming services are recurring revenue. They are lock in to a certain extent. They are excellent places to upsell you to other parts of their services bundle. There's no way they're letting go of that stuff. No. So yeah, it's always going to, the fragmentation is going to remain on those levels for sure. We're not going to get the simple smart home for many years. <laughs> Just make me in charge of everything. Who's the president <laughs> of the CSA and how do I take him out? They got to get you your Apple TV. Your TV made by Apple. I'm going to go to that guy's house, reboot his Apple TV and he'll be out of a job. <laughs> like, Sorry. <laughs> Alright guys, so the, the review is up now Jenna and Chris worked on it together Thank you guys, we're going to take a break And then when we get back, I'm going to be talking with Catherine Trindacosta about faking your death Online. It makes sense In context, I swear It's a hard segue <laughs> How do we fake the CSA guy's death online? Okay <laughs> <laughs> Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. 
Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. All right, welcome back. I'm very excited because I'm talking with my friend, Catherine Trindacosta. We've worked together. We've been colleagues for many, many years. And one of our favorite things to talk about is faking your death online. I know that's like a weird thing to have a favorite to talk about, but Catherine and I love to talk about it. And there was a super weird one that actually appeared in the New York Times last month called A Fake Death in Romance Landia. And it's all about this romance novelist who, you know, faked her death. So like, naturally, I had to get together with Catherine. We had to talk about it. She's like categorized fake deaths into different buckets for reasons. It's it's a whole thing. We're just going to go ahead and get to that chat right now with Catherine Trindacosta. Hello, Catherine. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me to talk about one of my favorite topics in the world. Yeah, you you and I have talked many times about fandom and online communities and the absolutely wild things that come out of it. And what we're talking about today is this woman was a member of the romance novelist community, specifically self-published romance novels. She was a member of this community. She was super, super active. She was so active that she was getting a lot of hate. And then one day someone appeared on her, her account and said she had this that it was her daughter and she had passed away. Everybody mourned. Two years passed. She reappeared on January 2nd of this year to say, surprise, I am alive. I'm excited to get back into the community. Let's have some fun. And the community did not react with the same enthusiasm that this author had. It's weird. It's almost as if if you fake your own death and people mourn you, if you show back up, people are not happy to see you. They are, in fact, very upset by the emotional manipulation. Yeah. And it was very interesting. The New York Times did a piece on this, and it was very focused on the mental health element. This woman had been battling depression. She'd been battling other mental health issues. And she really laid a lot of it, of the situation, at the feet of of, of that. (laughs) And we've just seen this particular circumstance appear over and over and over again. Well, here's the thing. If you're burnt out or if you're being attacked, it is perfectly valid to want to take a break, to want to leave that community, to want to not interact with the people who are causing you harm. You see that actually a fair bit when people are like, I'm just leaving social media. It's bad for me. People are yelling and I I can't handle it. That is all perfectly valid. Right. What you can't do is affect other people's health by putting them through the trauma of thinking someone they know has died. Right. And that's that's what happened here. Yes. If it's just about you, if it's just about your health, and this is a thing you actually see on the internet all the time, you can just disappear. You don't have to make an announcement even, right? If you're not using your real name and they don't know who you are, you can just leave. Yeah. You can always just leave. So when you do something like this, it becomes pretty clear that it's not just about your own health. It's about 
something else. It's either about like, you want to bury this and never come back, which is why this person coming back was unusual. Usually it's about trying to escape because something's about to catch up to you. And you want to cause trauma so that people don't poke into it harder. Or it's just about attention on its own, right? So faking a death is like a very extreme thing to do because it's not about you. It's about the effect that fake death has on many other people. And I talked to you about this, like it's like a spectrum. Yeah. When you fake your own death, there's like a an x-axis and a y-axis. And on the x-axis is like... You should be a chart. You made a whole chart. Yes, I drew a chart. So on the x-axis, there's like, are you killing your fake killing yourself or are you fake killing like members of your fake family or other things to like get attention or to just like give an excuse as to why something. And then the y-axis is like, you're doing this because people are catching up to your con and you need to go or are you doing it for attention, just purely for attention. And like, These things is all a spectrum and you can be, because it's the internet, it can both be yourself and someone else at the same time. And it can be a little (laughs) bit of like, I want to leave this situation before my lives catch up to me, but I also want attention. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that it it really happens in these fandom communities, right? Like you and I are both members of fandom communities. We've both been, we've seen this happen a lot. In, in, in the last 20 years. What are some examples of this happening before? Because this wasn't the first time we've seen somebody in a very small, very active community suddenly nope out of that community by faking a death. So my little chart that I made for myself actually doesn't have a ton of fandom examples because I want it to be more accessible to normal people. Uh-huh. So like, on one hand, you have the Banti Teo thing, which as a documentary came out recently about it. And that was very clearly a getting away fake death, right? So the Manti Teo story was this football player on this Notre Dame team that was doing really well. The major news cycle of that story was that Manti Teo's grandmother and girlfriend both died, that he continued to, during that year, that he was playing for them, all of those things. And it turned out that the girlfriend did not exist and that Teo had been catfished, which is, you know, the term for someone pretending to be someone else online to lure people into various kinds of relationships. Uh, and in that case, the the person pretending to, to be the girlfriend was very clearly had killed this person off in an attempt to end the, the lies, to sort of get away from this sort of fake thing. The catfishing. Kill the catfish, right? So that's sort of in the self-getaway category. In the dead center, this was a big story, like I think a couple years ago, like at zero, zero on the graph is Beth Ann McLaughlin. Uh Uh-huh. Now, Beth Ann McLaughlin was a professor at a university who announced the death of another academic from COVID. This academic having been a person who had been very vocal and active in the move for greater equality within the sciences. So this person had been Native American and disabled and queer, I believe, as well. And then in a truly horrifying manipulation, 
this other academic came up and said, oh, she's, she's died of COVID. And it turned out that she had less died of COVID and more never existed and had, in fact, been Beth Ann McLaughlin the whole time. <laughs> so she had to get rid of her because she couldn't yes. have anybody. So this was both killing someone, a fake someone else and your fake self. And it was to get rid of both the con and clearly for attention. Otherwise, you wouldn't announce it using your own real name. Like, there's a lot going on in that one. It's one of my favorites because it's, if this person had paid attention to online fandoms, she would have known, like, anytime you make an announcement about someone else's death, they're going to look at you. So don't (laughs) attach your real name to it. Like, it was wild. And then in the form of, like, clearly just doing it for attention and like killing random family members or like other people and then giving themselves cancer is the infamous Miss Scribe, the fandom person who had so many massive moments of fandom drama that it involved a giant like eight part series of posts where this person did more work than journalists do in dissecting what had gone on. There's like a term for when you're killing other people where it's it's called Munchausen by internet, mm-hmm. right? Because the, the famous thing is Munchausen by proxy. That's when usually parents pretend or make their child sick so that they can get attention as the caregiver of a mm-hmm. sick child. At least in Munchausen by internet, there usually isn't a real child, but people will, for attention or sympathy beef up their trauma. And I think the reason we're sort of seeing this acceleration of it is that it's come with the acceleration of like attention as a commodity online. Yes. And so you can't just step away. You have to get attention when you step away too. What's bigger attention getting than dying? (laughs) There's also like a vindictiveness about it that is very internet-y. That's very like, you people did not appreciate me enough and you did not like me enough or you did not pay me enough attention. So in addition to doing this thing that'll get attention, I'm going to make it painful for you. I'm going to make you feel bad about it. Right. Um, so I both get attention and I've gotten back at you. Yeah. And going back to the the misscribe example, because that's, I think, one of the most interesting ones. It was one of the earliest ones. This was like what? early 2000s. It was in the Harry Potter fandom community, which at the time was one of the biggest online communities out there. There was a lot of people involved. And this whole saga like took down fan websites. Like it it did a lot. Yeah, it was it created this this huge kind of catastrophe through the entire fandom community. And a lot of people were involved. I believe Cassandra Clare, the now very famous New York Times author, was a part of that community and, and was having to deal with the, the with its having to deal with it while also being accused of, I think, plagiarism within the community. There was just a whole, whole lot of mess. And at the center of it was Miss Scribe, who had had gotten involved with a whole lot of people. And then when things started to get really intense, started killing off family members that we assume did not really exist. And a lot of the reporting done since then bears out that. And I think it's really interesting because we really only see this when the internet came around. This wasn't a phenomenon as common pre-internet. And it was like 
okay, we can all communicate. We can all gather in these smaller groups now. And we can also get so intense that we don't necessarily know how to regulate ourselves and escape these. And I think like we've all had those moments where you're like, oh, I'm really into this community and you need to figure out a way out. And these people are like, okay, my great grandmother is going to die for a third time today. Well, I, I didn't think of it actually as like going full circle before like pictures and documents. You could fake your own death by just walking to another town and claiming to be someone else, right? Yeah. Like this used, this used to be an easier thing, but it didn't used to be for attention. It was escape. It was always an escape thing. It was a con men trying to escape or, you know, various other things. People just trying to leave scandal behind. There is sort of the infamous like theories about, about mm -hmm. various lords who fake their own death to just sort of get away. So it used to be very easy to fake your own death, but that was killing your real, the identity you were born in. Right. It wasn't constructing and then killing off a fake identity quite as much. I mean, for con men, yeah. But like, again, it was sort of, it was solely to get away. The attention was not really part of it because you didn't actually want that much attention. You wanted to be able to, to get away. And so now we've reached this, this era where you can create and kill non-real people sort of easily, but you aren't doing it to get away from your real life obligations or from the police because that's not going to happen. You're really doing it just to see how people react to get attention. It's like the it's like a TV trope, right? Where people like attend their own funerals to see how people feel and on all of those things. And like yeah. in television, that's not real. It's a <laughs> it's a rhetorical device to to allow you to find out how people feel about characters. <laughs> and then people are now just like, I would like to know what people would say about me if I died. So I shall die. I'll, I'll do a quick announcement. I'll post it on Facebook or Tumblr or Twitter or wherever. And then I'm just going to sit back and rake in the, the true feelings that, that everybody has about me. Some personal news. I died, right? <laughs> yeah. That's basically what it is. They're just saying, okay, you know what? I'm just, I'm just looking for it. We don't know if that was necessarily the case in this instance. We don't know if this is the case with Michin, but... Revealing it and coming back to me very much screams, I would like attention. Yeah. And very much screams too of that, like, of that internet even vindictiveness of like, you all drove me to this. And so I'm revealing it to you now. So you'll feel extra bad. I believe her husband is now taking the blame as being the one who told her to do it. Yeah. It, when she spoke with the New York Times, she said that things just got out of control. Her husband insisted on faking her death on the internet. And when she started to feel better and feel like she wanted to return to the community, she did. The community has naturally not been really enthusiastic about her return. They are not excited to see her. And it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that she she felt this was her best avenue forward. It's unfortunate that this community had to deal with a lot of trauma and grief over the last two years. And a lot of people probably felt really bad. Good reminder, always be kind on the internet. You never know what's going on with someone else. Just be kind. But this one was, I, th I just thought it was so interesting because reading it, every single part of it I heard, I was like, oh, this sounds like Miss Scribe. This sounds like half a dozen other right. situations I've seen over the years in these smaller insular communities where someone just says, F it. I want to see what happens. 
And it was just truly kind of wild to me. This person seemed a lot less destructive about it in the, in a way, mm-hmm. because you can tell because she underestimated the negative response to coming back. Because uh, in the sort of fandom examples, it's either like desperation, like, oh, no, people are real mad about real things that I have done to them, because there are also many instances of like fake outs to get money for, for the fake conventions mm-hmm. and things like I need to get away in a way that they won't they will feel bad asking questions about. Right. Or it's F all y'all, like you are the worst people, (laughs) like you've ruined me and I want to make you feel as bad as I did, so time to fake a death. (laughs) And sometimes too, like time to fake a death in the like most attention-y, zeitgeisty way, like the Beth Ann McLaughlin one, to kill a fake native person with COVID. There's just like a lot of appropriation packed into like that one sentence. As far as we know, she's she's white. She's not part of the disabled community. She is not queer. Like she was just doing a lot of appropriation and then killing that person off just to feel happy, just yeah. to feel good about herself, to like hurt other people. I think the thing that too about that one is like to look at COVID early on too, like early on in the pandemic mm-hmm. when it was so horrifying. I mean, it's still horrifying, but when when it was both horrifying and really uncertain what was going on, to see that as an opportunity to get rid of this thing you built is callous in a real specific way. Super, super callous. I think, too, it speaks to, like, a very sort of immature internet Mm -hmm. sense, like, people being sort of, because they don't have to, to act like an adult in a room with other adults, they sort of regress because it is the, like, childish, like, oh, I need to get out of a test Grandma's been dead for five years. She won't mind if I kill her again. Like, <laughs> it, it has sort of that kind of logic to it. Yeah. The kind of logic a child has who does not really understand the real effects. Like, you want attention. But the, the difference between, like, I want attention and, like, this causes other people real pain to feel my pain mm-hmm. is, like, a very sort of immature child conception of how, like, people process those kinds of announcements about people about people because like to them it's going to make them feel bad but it's not traumatic because it's not a real person that they know yeah except to those people who have empathy and are real humans it does (laughs) yeah i think it's it's this common thing we see in communities it's often people who are kind of new to these communities they they forget that you can forge real relationships online without seeing people all the time Catherine, you and i live on other sides of the country and we talk constantly we talk all the time and we have a real relationship we're friends yes. we're going to go to disney world together and i think people forget that yeah you can forge those relationships online you can forge really impactful relationships online and so when they when they kill someone off when they start to disrupt those for their own personal gain there's something really kind of egregious about it it feels just a little feels wild and you kind of laugh because we've seen enough of these at this point that i almost always laugh but it still feels kind of like taken advantage of people, other people's kindness and forgotten kind of the social codes that we are all usually very cognizant of in real life and we oftentimes forget in um, a virtual space. I think one of the reasons that you and I are so fascinated by the fandom stuff is, this is going to sound weird, it's like porn 
Um, whatever technology porn goes to first is going to be the big technology. Similarly, fandom finds the drama center points years before the mainstream. So like when the internet first sort of started, everyone did this drama and now we're seeing it leak more into like other places, right? Like the Manti Teo thing was like a major college sports scandal. Right. Which is far away from like two Harry Potter fanfic archives having a fight, right? <laughs> so you can you can do that archiving. Like every time one of these things happen, I text like various people who are journalist friends of ours and I'm like, you're writing about this story. I need you to understand how many times this has happened and how easy it is to investigate and check and how it happens. And I think too, for the fandoms where it still happens, they tend to be young fandoms because they tend to be younger people because they tend to have not lived through it already. Or in the case of, of this fandom, this was a fandom where you had a lot of people who weren't maybe as online as someone like you or I or, or people generally involved in fandom art was. These were right. people who were kind of new to using the internet to connect this way. Or were, because they were self-publishing as authors, were using real names or names that had associations to them that gives them a sense of security because it's like no one's going to do anything weird with their own name or the name that is what they publish <laughs> under, not really realizing that that's what happens in fanfic all the time. I think you're right. I think this is something that we see again and again in fandom. This is why you and I immediately both went, oh, yeah, that woman faked her own death and then came back in the romance community. That's normal. And like we didn't even blink. And so other people were going, oh, my God, you and I are like, seen it she didn't start a cult so she's like yeah there's no snape wives there's no cult going on this is still beginner fuckery and fandom right but but thank you Catherine, so much i'm sure i'll probably we'll probably have to bring you back the next time somebody does something truly wild that you and i have seen a billion times before in fandom to talk about it's gonna be a lot of fun thanks Catherine. We're going to take a real quick break, and when we're back, we're going to talk about the Valve Steam Deck and what's actually changed in the last year since it came out. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, we're back. And you know what else is back? The Steam Deck. I, you know, it honestly didn't leave. It's been over a year since the Steam Deck came out, and it's still going strong. 
And there's been over like a hundred updates on it. There's been a ton of weird little software quirks and changes over the last year. It really, it feels like a different device from the thing that shipped back in February, 2022. And so that also means I got to bring back Sean Hollister because he has spent over 435 hours with the Steam Deck. He and I are going to talk about what's changed, what the drawbacks are that still exist, and what Sean would probably score the thing if he had to score it right now. Hey, Sean, thank you for joining me and talking about the Steam Deck. Hey, it's great to be back. I love this thing. I really, really like my Steam Deck. And I think you are one of the few people that likes their Steam Deck more than me. You loved it when it first came out, but you also were very clear-eyed about its many, many flaws when it first came out. Yeah. And they've changed since then. But kind of walk me through when it first came out, how much you were disappointed. Yeah, let me let me go back even a little bit further. I got to go okay. to Valve's headquarters before the Steam Deck came out, uh, months before. I got to try it, and I, I had this vision in my head of like, this is going to be where I buy my games now. Because I'd, I'd changed where I buy my PC games. I used, to, I used to buy them, of course, on a PC. And then I was like, well, now all these great indie games and small games are coming out, and I'm going to play them on the Nintendo Switch instead. This is where I'm going to buy them, because this is where I could actually play them. I can take them with me. I can play them in the bedroom, you know, when my, when my kids are trying to sleep and things like that. I can, I can take them on the go. I just wasn't getting enough time with kids to play my games on my actual PC. So I was giving Nintendo Nintendo my money. And I tried this Steam Deck. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to be the Nintendo Switch of PCs. Not in that it's going to be like this thing I buy at retail that just plays my games well, but it's going to be where I buy my games because I can, I can just have the time to play them finally. And I was like, this is going to be great. And then the Steam Deck arrived on my doorstep in February 2022. And the thing was just felt so messy and broken and buggy. I'm like, how the heck could you put this thing on sale, Valve? <laughs> and it wasn't just that it was it was broken, because I've used a lot of broken gadgets before. It was that Valve was pulling the rug out from under me every single day with new updates. And some of these updates made things better, and some of these updates made things worse. During the period that I was supposed to review this and let the entire world know whether this device is any good or not. Uh And so I wrote, this thing was a mess. I said, if Valve sold the console I've been playing at Best Buy or GameStop, people would return it in droves. The UI was sluggish and and, and crappy. The games, you'd launch a lot of games and they would just not launch. They would just go to a black screen. Some would crash in the middle. My Wi-Fi connection would disappear. My Bluetooth headset would pair and unpair. So many issues with this thing at launch. There was other like big stuff. Like, wasn't there an SD card issue where it would like just delete your games? Oh my gosh. Okay, so SD cards are this thing. I I bricked. I, I, I kid you not. I bricked three SD cards. Like, just had to throw them out. Yes. Like I have one right here. I have a 256 gigabyte, very nice SanDisk Extreme 256 gigabyte card here that I used to help review the Skydio 2 drone because, you know, you need a very fast SD card for drone footage. You're getting 100 right. megabits per second down from that, that camera. I stuck that thing in there. It, it, it's a brick now because it didn't format the card properly. Uh-huh. Valve had this issue where it was it was trying to do like a full and complete format, like overwriting Every bit on an SD card when you're doing it. And they switched to a quick format. That's better. I 
doesn't break SD cards as far as I'm aware. But this thing where I, I lost three cards because of this. <laughs> I plugged a, a solid state drive into the deck's USB port. And mm-hmm. the deck didn't know, I guess, not to run devices too fast when it doesn't provide enough power. Because, you know, it's, it's a small device with like a 48 watt hour battery, this Steam Deck. It doesn't have a lot yeah. of power for its USB port. Well, my SSD in my enclosure, a nice SSD I've been using for a while to transfer things between computers, the Deck decided that it was going to just blow through that thing, download giant <laughs> game to it very quickly without uh-huh. providing it enough power. And so that got bricked too. And <laughs> it's not like this thing was just... A shit show at launch. <laughs> and yet, you could already see the potential. There was so much potential there. They were fixing things very quickly. And so by the end of the review period, I was like, you probably shouldn't buy this thing today. It's not ready. But wow, you can play all of these old PC games and all these new PC games with all this horsepower, these amazing controls you can customize to do any kind of game. Phenomenal. And so I was like, okay. Maybe this thing will be great. So was it like the flexibility of the device was so good that you could overlook the fact that you had now spent hundreds of dollars of your own money in the process of reviewing it, just washed that money down the drain? There were. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I I, want to throw some caveats in there. (laughs) First off, we gave this thing a score that today would have probably fleshed, uh, would probably be like a Mm 4.5. At the time, we gave it a 6.5. But like if you read our descriptions of how we review devices today, we would have have to give it like less than a 5.0 back then because we do not like telling people to buy gadgets that are not ready, that have a lot of issues with them that may not pan out. At the time, though, yes, I I could see that this thing was already fun to use. And that's Mm -hmm. super important. Like people want to buy things that are fun, right? Even if even if part of the fun is like figuring out how to make games run on a console. I, I've read so many. I don't. I, th- I think you're also in the Steam Deck subreddit. Yes. And there are so many people in there who post how much fun they're having just figuring out how to make various games work, figuring out all kinds of cool things to do with it as a full Linux PC. Lots of people say they're doing more of that than they are actually playing games, which is yeah. funny to me. There's guys who are saying, oh, I, I plug it into my TV and I use like a PS4 controller and I just use it as like a console, like a traditional console now. And then there's people who are like, oh, yeah, I use it as my primary computer. It just seems like this great it's, – it's for the tinkerers. It's for all the yeah. people who just like to, to mess with stuff. I've seen people do video editing on this, on this computer. <gasps> I, I've seen people like piece together, you know, stuff for their work. Uh, I saw there's a one of the developers of VLC, the amazing um, open source uh, video player that you know just, you can play plays anything you throw at it. Is working on a way to turn the deck into like a miniature TV, internet streaming TV, so it'll, it'll just stream down like channels over the web or something. I don't know. Yeah, I want a portable TV. I want a handheld device that can double as my work PC in a pinch. I want a a game system that flawlessly runs all my GameCube and Wii games because there's an emulator that somebody put on Linux. Like Just flawlessly. Yes, it does all these things. And the controls, which are many of them carryovers from the, the, the cult classic Steam controller that Valve released a number of years ago and then had to put on a $5 fire sale. Anyhow, if you missed out on the Steam controller, the controls in here just let you do 
so much. I have, I'm, I'm playing through um, Trails in the Sky now. It's, a, it's an RPG game with a lot of dialogue. Uh, I have three of the buttons on my Steam Deck set to be turbo buttons mm-hmm. so that I can speed through the dialogue and, you know, the sword swinging when, when I'm, you know, trying to build up my CP to do the big flashy magic and special attacks. Yeah. When I am playing Genshin Impact, which you're not really supposed to be able to play on a Steam Deck, but you can because somebody built a client for it in Linux. And also because I can stream Genshin Impact for my PlayStation 5 because there's a PlayStation 5 streaming client on the deck, which is amazing. And it works really well. It works really well. When I'm playing that game on a PS5 by itself or, or, or you know any of the other consoles, it's really difficult to aim a bow with like some of the mm-hmm. bow characters in that game, which is annoying because the game rewards you for, you know, hitting enemy creatures in the head with a bow for some reason. I don't know why. Anyhow, the deck has gyroscopic aiming that you can add to literally anything you play on it, including streaming a game from my PlayStation 5 to the handheld. So my deck is transmitting its gyroscopic motions over my home Wi-Fi to my PlayStation 5, to tell my PlayStation 5 how far to move a virtual analog stick so that the bow of my anime character can line up with the head of some legendary monster in this game. And it feels like it's running locally. Because <laughs> and that's just cool. There's just so much cool shit you can do with the deck. But that's not what the focus of my recent piece was. Like, the main thing I want to tell you today, the main thing I wrote in my, like, long-term review is that Yes, there's there's this whole ecosystem of cool things, but also you can just use the Steam Deck now as a game system, and it works. And it did not at launch. That was not the case yeah. nearly a year ago when it launched. Yeah, and it works with like a wide variety of games. I know we've seen some complaints on the the, the subreddits because somebody goes and they play like this really nobody's ever heard of it game from 20 years ago and they're like oh the steam deck doesn't work out of the box with it but most modern games most new games it works pretty pretty well out of the box i played like just three days of vampire survivors my sister was like don't you want to say hi to me i haven't seen you in a year i'm here for christmas and i was like i i sure but after i get through this level yeah like just totally glued to it because it played so so well it worked so well and also i could like huff the uh the fumes off of the fan on the steam deck this is this is a beautiful in joke also from the Steam Deck subreddit and Discords. Uh, everybody comments on how how good it smells the, the yeah. chip fumes that are coming out through the fan. I don't know what that is. I'm guessing it's just warm air. Probably should not be huffing it. <laughs> Probably this is a disclaimer. Do not huff those smells. We cannot be held liable for it. Please don't do it. We don't know what's in it, but man, it smells great. It does. It does. At the risk of reduction, there Mm -hmm. are three reasons why games might not work on the Steam Deck. Okay. One is they are big modern games, but they use anti-cheat software. That's the biggest one. Some of the biggest games in the world will not work on the Steam Deck, like PUBG, Lost Ark, Call of Duty Warzone, Rust, Destiny 2. A lot of these games don't work, beca- not because the Steam Deck doesn't support anti-cheat. In fact, Valve went out of their way to go ahead and say, hey, big providers of anti-cheat, easy anti-cheat, and BattleEye, we're going to make you work. Hey, developers, all you have to do is enable them. That's not the reason they don't work. They don't work because the developers, the publishers, decided they weren't willing to take the risk 
of enabling these and then maybe somebody on Linux figures out some kind of cool hack mm-hmm. because these any cheat software can't necessarily run as effectively in the kernel level manner that it wants to because there is no way for them to control what happens on Linux the way they can on Windows. Now, somebody's going to listen to the podcast and be like, oh, it's totally possible you could totally build a system where this works. What Tim Sweeney at Epic Games, who says Fortnite will not come to this, uh, what, what Tim Sweeney will tell you is that they don't want to spend the money to build such a system. <laughs> they don't think it's worthwhile for the amount of players they'll get in return. Right. So, I mean, he didn't say that explicitly, but reading between the lines of what he told us, that's that's what he's saying. Yeah, it's an investment to to build support for the Steam Deck. And one of the reasons I think it's so popular thus far is that the investment for most game developers is fairly minimal, right? When they don't have the anti-cheat software. Yeah, I would say even if they do have the anti-cheat software, it's minimal to enable it to work. But it's not necessarily minimal to satisfy your company and your shareholders that you will have not inadvertently created some kind of loophole that will come to bite you in the ass down the road. That might be the expensive part. Yeah, most games just work. Uh, Anti-cheat is one reason they don't work. Um, Mm -hmm. Another reason why they don't work is because they are old enough that whatever game company built it had to do something very customer proprietary with the software that they used to run, say, the video cutscenes at the beginning of the game. Mm -hmm. Some games will not launch simply because they cannot launch the video that plays at the very (laughs) beginning of the game and the rest of the game would run. And the reason we know this is because most of the games on the Steam Deck that are designed for Windows run on a compatibility layer called Proton that is developed primarily by Valve, open source developers that Valve is paying to improve Proton's compatibility. But there is also a fork of Proton called Proton GE, which stands for Glorious Egg Roll. Oh, wow. Which I love, which is maintained by people who do not care so much about proprietary things that they may not have the legal rights to use. And there, some games that will just run because they said they built in whatever the proprietary video codec was. And so you can see a game that wouldn't work on the main fork of Proton just does on the Glorious Egg Roll version. Are there examples of games off the top of your head that that don't work? Because I definitely have, I think I've run into this situation and I'm just completely blanking on any games. A Persona 4 Golden was not working on the Steam Deck at launch. It had issues, I think, with cutscenes and also with audio. Uh, there was some okay. kind of audio glitch as well. In Glorious Egg Roll, it worked perfectly. And then Valve went back and worked with Proton to, I think, get around some of those issues. I don't know if it uses some kind of compatibility layer for the for the codecs now or what. But they did make it work, and they made it a full deck-verified game. Uh, I know that currently uh, The Longest Journey, the last time I tried to play mm-hmm. The Longest Journey, which is a a famous point-and-click adventure. Uh, that does not run on Steam Deck. I can't remember if it works in Glorious Egg Roll or not, but I would I would bet you 10 bucks that it is one of those issues where it's just some codec or some uh, thing that they try to launch at the beginning of the game doesn't work properly, and that's the reason it doesn't play. Because there's no reason why the deck shouldn't be able to play that game. Yeah, I think one of the ones I run into is Crusader Kings 3. Uh, it's got some like weird pop-ups at the beginning of the game, and sometimes I can get right through them and get to playing... And sometimes I want to fling my beloved Steam Deck across the room. Yeah. So it's so it's anti-cheat, one reason. Video codecs or, or other proprietary techniques that they use that, you know, 
the Steam Deck doesn't know how to interpret yet. Or, and this is also a, a relatively large category at this point, it actually does work and, and Valve just is marking it as unsupported because they haven't fully tested it yet, which is yeah. wild. It is wild to me, not that they haven't tested the whole hybrid, but it's wild to me how many games Valve says, hey, this doesn't work, but they haven't gone back to retest and it actually does. Mass Effect is a good example of that. The, the Legendary Edition, the majority of people who play it have no issues with it, but it continues to say, does not work. Don't try it. Mass Effect is one where there was a period of time where it wouldn't launch unless you like jump through some hoops because EA broke that and it broke a lot of other EA games by introducing <laughs> a new version of their EA launcher, which used to be called Origin. That's a whole long story. They introduced a new version of the EA app and it just, they never tested it on the deck and it didn't work and it broke everything. And you couldn't see the prompts that you needed to click through in order to get into your game. It would ask you oh. like several things and those things wouldn't graphically show up on the deck. They do now, uh, particularly if you enable Proton Experimental, but those are still all marked unsupported because EA hasn't quite finished it yet. So they run properly. Like EA keeps breaking it with new versions. And so Valve, I think Valve is waiting until that all settles down. But like The Witcher 2, Stalker, Shadow of Chernobyl, XCOM, mm -hmm. Enemy Within, the original Half-Life. Those games are all marked as unsupported and they all just run. And now everything seems to be ready. It, well, not everything, but a lot of it. Like... It seems like something where I could recommend it to a family member and not have to worry about doing tech support all the time. Yeah, I largely agree with you. Like, I recommend this now to people who want a PC gaming system that they could take with you. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to people who do not like the PC of experience of, like, tweaking settings. Because you can still absolutely play a game on Steam Deck and be like... This runs, but it doesn't run very well. And if you come from the PC background where you're like, okay, I will turn down the shadows and, you know, and set the game spec to low, but then I will increase the anti-aliasing because this is a 720p, you know, 800p screen where you really need anti-aliasing or else games look pixely. If I'm coming from that background or if I know the person I'm recommending it comes from that background, absolutely. No question. If you have $400 to spend, you want this portable gaming PC, do it. If you're the kind of person who, like, you want everything to just work, like sticking a cartridge into a Nintendo Switch works, and you don't want to think about settings ever, it's not there yet. It could be there someday, but if you're that kind of person, I would wait until future handhelds. That's fair. I think that's, well, they can go just get a Switch until then. It plays a lot of these games. But you probably shouldn't because there'll probably be a Switch Pro next year. But anyhow, moving on. Or this year. It's 2023. I expect this holiday, well, may maybe we'll have something. I don't know. Well, thank you, Sean, for coming on and, and talking about the Steam Deck. We're, we're going to let you go because we'll have to bring you back again to talk about the Steam Deck. And we want to do it over lots of different episodes. Appreciate you taking the time. I'm so happy. I will come back to tell you about the latest hacks later on. Awesome. Okay, that's it for The Vergecast today. Thank you for listening. As always, there's a ton more coverage on the site, and you can see all the stories that we've talked about this week on TheVerge.com. If you have thoughts, feedbacks, feelings, Steam Deck game recommendations, you can always email The Vergecast at Vergecast at TheVerge.com. And if you have questions, call the hotline. It's 866-VERGE-11. That's 866-VERGE-11. This show is produced by Andrew Marino and Liam James. Nori Donovan is our executive producer, and Brooke Minters is our editorial director of audio. 
The Vergecast is a Verge production and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I will not be here on Friday. I'm going to be in Disney World, but Neelai will be back this Friday with a whole bunch of the Verge crew, and they're going to be talking about the Samsung Galaxy Unpacked event and all the other news that popped up this week. So stay tuned. Till then, rock on. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.